Hello, and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director at Softway, a company that helps businesses connect with their people to build resilience through culture building products, leadership development, and technology. Today, I'm also joined by our president and CEO, Mohammed Anwar. Hello, Mohammed. Hey, Jeff. And our vice president, Chris Petrie. Hey, Chris. Hey. As we know, in each episode, we dive into one element of business or strategy and test our theory of love, of love against it. So today's topic has a bit of a cryptic title. It's love as a nice strategy. And actually, this topic of nice was inspired by our guest today, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. He's the founder and president of the talent strategy group, Mark Efron. And Mark helps the world's biggest brands and most successful companies elevate the quality and impact of their talent. He leads transformational projects globally in industries ranging from pharmaceuticals to consumer products to technology. And as the founder and president of the Talent Strategy Group, he leads the firm's global consulting, education, executive search, and publishing businesses. He's co-authored the uh, Harvard Business Review bestselling book, One Page Talent Management, often called the Talent Management Bible. His most recent book, Eight Steps to High Performance, is quickly reaching bestseller status. And Mark co-founded the Talent Management Institute at the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagler Business School, which has become the world's most popular executive education program on talent management with more than 3,000 graduates. In the past, Mark has also served as a VP of Talent Management for Avon Products and led global leadership consulting practice for Aon Hewitt. He was also SVP of Leadership Development for Bank of America and a congressional staff assistant. On top of these accolades, Mark has also been published in or heard on Fast Company, Financial Times, BBC, Bloomberg Radio, Harvard Harvard Business Review, and the New York Post, just to name a few. He also publishes Talent Q magazine, which he founded in 2013 to help executives make smarter decisions about how to manage talent. And as far as education goes, Mark earned an MBA from the Yale University School of Management and a BA in political science from the University of Washington. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's a real pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's an honor to be on the podcast uh, or the show and uh, look forward to the conversation. Oh, the honor is all ours. And we're definitely itching to unwrap the mystery around love as a nice strategy. But there's still one thing we need to do before we get started, and that is our icebreaker. So I will... For the first time, look at these questions. I'm a little nervous, to be honest, but I'm nervous because of Chris. And we, we'll see how he handles today's question. Chris, are you a traveler or a homebody? I'm a traveler, but there are times where I want to be a homebody. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm okay. a homebody traveler. <laughs> okay, well, at least, okay, good answer. Thank you, Chris. The the joke here, Mark, is that Chris never gives a straight answer. Even in now, we like you can tell our executive producer is trying to give him a two option question at this point. 
So there's really no way, but he still has to caveat his answer. So it's a good consulting skill set. It really depends on traveling versus homebody. Each have their own advantages when you look That's at what them. he does. Yeah. That's what he does. Are you more oh. interested in being a traveler or are you more interested in being a homebody? Because we have some products for both of those. Oh my goodness. All right. Mohammed, are you Sir. more are you more productive in the morning or in the evening? More in the evening, for sure. Like See, late that's, evenings. <laughs> that's a direct answer right there. See, no no caveats. I love it. Mark. Yes. He just gave a caveat. <laughs> late evening. So, but anyway. <laughs> Mark, if you could learn how to master one musical instrument in a day, what would it be? Piano. I agree. <laughs> All in on that one, too. About to say, I, I don't give a lot of one-word answers, but it kind of seemed like it sufficed. <laughs> Because um, it's such a versatile. I mean, you can do anything. You can make incredible sounds. Um, and I used to play a little bit as a kid, so I feel maybe I have a tiny bit of a head start. That's a great answer. I actually 100% agree. Most composing is done on piano for a reason. It's a excellent foundational instrument. And thank you for that answer. Quick, concise. I should have been more esoteric. The recorder. I would like to master the recorder. That, <laughs> that, that's a more interesting. Then it leads to why the recorder. Piano is like, okay, good answer. Fine, let's move on. <laughs> so, Mark, I, I want to start this conversation about, so I'm, I'm sure people are wondering, what is, what is this nice that we're talking about? What is love as a nice strategy? And it comes from an article that we wrote and we, we, we loved and we we started this conversation is titled don't have a nice culture. And you wrote, can you tell us about this article? Yeah. Let me give you the moderate length answer. Um, jump in along the way. If I'm getting too long, um, by background, I spent a lot of time consulting with big companies around the globe on talent issues. And the difficult part of helping companies isn't the technical side processes, as you all know, are relatively easy and straightforward to build the challenges in companies to execute on the processes that they've said they're committed to. And as my, my colleagues and I travel around the world working with companies, there is a very consistent refrain when we ask them why they aren't doing what they've said they really, really want to do. And it comes out no matter where we are. If you're in Minnesota, it's well, we're we're Minnesota nice. You know, we we couldn't tell people that they're not performing well. Or I'll go to India and I'll be well, a very uh, hierarchical power distance culture here. Or I'll go to Singapore. It's well, we respect elders. We don't. there's always a really good excuse why people don't want to do take the tough talent moves or have the tough conversations. And it's almost always packaged up in, we're nice. As if, I guess, others aren't nice. We're the only nice company. Everybody else is a bunch of jerks. But here at XYZ Company, we're, we're sweet and wonderful. And I mean, it took, I'm a little slow. It took me a while to figure out that this is just a very common excuse of, I'm human and I don't want to upset other humans. Therefore, I'm not going to say things to them that might upset them. Now, part of that is just, yeah, our brains are hardwired to get along with others. That's a very good thing um, in most cases. But it's really easy for that to become a passive-aggressive type of setup where, you know, because I, I like Muhammad or Chris or Jeff, 
I don't want to make them feel bad by saying that last presentation wasn't their best. So we're just, we're going to let that go. And then, you know, they never hear that. And 10 years later, we're saying, oh, we had to have a tough conversation with them. Sorry, guys, not a job anymore because I was so nice to you. Um, and so it just the article really came out of this being an excuse that we only use about people. And I'll extend the story just a little bit more. Um, you would never hear a CEO responding on an investor call say things like, oh, um, you asked why our, uh, our R&D pipeline is empty. Well, you know, the head of R&D is a really nice guy. And I did not want to hurt his feelings by telling him <laughs> that he wasn't doing a good job. So, well, you know, your, your books haven't been balanced properly in a year. What happened? Well, our CFO, she's the sweetest woman you'd ever want to meet. And she would feel <laughs> so bad if we told her that the numbers didn't add up. <laughs> you would never hear a CEO respond that way. Yet we do with regularity when it comes to people. Well, she, you know, she's great and he's really nice. And so it's this, it seems a unique construct and harmful construct in how we interact with people. So that's kind of, let me shut up there. That's kind of the moderate length explanation of, of what generated that article. No, that's great. And it, it kind of comes down to like the topic centers around, you know, at a very dry way from a dry perspective, managing people, right? Like it's, you're talking about these types of decisions and there's really this fear, really to me, it's fear-based of having tough conversations or having the right needed moves in business, right? Yeah. I mean, in many ways it is that, we want an outcome, but we don't want it badly enough to make the commitment. I mean, it's like anything else we do in life. You know, are you willing to go through the pain necessary to be successful? And when it comes to managing people, you know, let's say Chris is my boss and Chris thought that last presentation was really flat. Um, if Chris wants me to succeed, if he really wants me to succeed, he's going to say, hey, Mark, I know you've got great presentations in you. That last one didn't stack up to what I know you can do. Let's talk about how it could be better. That's a very nice way of having the conversation. I mean, you could also say, that was horrible. Don't ever have that. But you can have that conversation in a really nice and productive way. And I think that's where we, we as people managers sometimes trip ourselves up is not recognizing you can have a wonderful, supportive, loving conversation with someone to help them get better that also redirects them. But in the, I'm channeling Marshall Goldsmith. I don't know if you're, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, great coach. Um, he wrote the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Feed forward. You don't have to say that what you did in the past, that was horrid. You <laughs> can get just as much reaction saying, hey, Mark, in your next presentation, I, the executive team actually likes really succinct decks. So go for three or four pages instead of you know, anything longer. Now, that could have been, hey, Mark, you brought 20 pages of thick material. It didn't work. I don't learn anything more from that comment than I learned from, from Chris saying, hey, um, they, they love it when it's concise and, and perky. Let's work on that. Now, I might think in the back of, in the back of my mind, is he saying it wasn't good? But that's not going to be the focus because he didn't you know, kind of say you know, bad presentation. So, so it's very simple in concept, but why do you think it's so hard? Like, I think, I feel like, I read your article. I'm like, yeah, it makes 100% sense. And yet it's a huge problem everywhere. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a couple of factors intertwined. And I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on it as well. Because you, you've all been around for a while and interacted with, you've been people managers, you've interacted with lots of clients. Um, I think there is the underlying natural desire to get along with others. 
I mean, let's just let's start there. Our brains are hardwired to be social and get along with other people. So doing something that might cause us not to get along is going against something that our brains are saying, don't do that. I mean, that's kind of classic danger flashing in our minds. You might piss off Jeff. You don't want to piss off Jeff. You need to work with the guy. You're going to see him in the elevator tomorrow. You know, all the things that naturally come. And it might not be front of the mind, but it's back of the mind. I need to get along with Jeff. Therefore, I might not want to say this. So I think part of it is natural human condition. I think part of it is we're not rewarded for that in most workplaces. Hmm. Um, there's not a transparency award that I've seen given out in any company. Wow, Chris was the most transparent leader we have. Yay! <laughs> I, I've never seen that. I mean, maybe you guys have it. Um, we should do that. <laughs> I, I've never seen the transparency award. We, we never praise people for doing that. And um, we don't, I think we too often cast feedback as this horrible backward looking, I'm going to beat up on you thing, as opposed to, I care enough about Mohammed that I want him to win every interaction. I want him to win. I'm going to tell him this thing. He's going to win bigger and better the next time he does this. And, and that's not, that's not a cute word trick or a disingenuous way of approaching it. If we truly love the people we work with and want them to win, we should want to give them all the insights around that. Uh, and then probably final pieces. Sometimes we're just not skilled. It's like, I don't know how I'd have the conversation. What word should I use first? But a lot of that is, you know, kind of get a script, write it out. And it just reps after that. And a lot of it is once you've had a few reps of being honest, it becomes a lot easier. It's funny, you know, like uh, we've uh, spoken about love as a business strategy and the culture of love quite a bit with our customers. And the first impression that they get uh, from our uh, title or our approach is, oh, it must be all about being nice and soft and not, you know, managing the people the way you need to manage. And we've had to come back and explain, no, it's actually the opposite. When you say love as a business strategy or a culture of love, and you love one another in your company, then you have to do what's needed to help the very person that you love. And mm -hmm. that's where I see the correlation where it's, you're not really being nice to the person you love if you're not really helping them grow, if you're not helping them succeed. And so where this, I see the tie into this is when you do love someone, it's about having the necessary conversations, no matter how tough it is, and we call it tough love. Mm -hmm and you're having the coaching moments, just like you would with your children, because you love your kids and you want the best for them, you will have those moments where you are going to tell them, hey, this is where you need to improve. This is where you need to get better. But somehow in a professional world, we we tend to avoid those type of conversations. And I, I totally resonate with your article that this is a big problem uh, that exists in the workplace for sure. That was, a, that was a great analogy, Mo, because I'm never nice to my kids. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect analogy. Because if you really love someone, I mean, how much time do you really have to be nice to them? Right? <laughs> well, and there's one, most of us aren't, I mean, maybe except for, for Jeff, most of us aren't naturally good at doing that. Um, I don't like, I hate having tough conversations with people. I hate it. I just know it's the right thing to do. And so, you know, you grit your teeth and you get through it. And I, I don't recall a single time when I've said, oh, I wish I hadn't had that conversation. I oftentimes say I'm glad it's over, um, but mm -hmm. I, 
I never say, oh, the fact that I hid from that person, a salient fact for five years, that felt like the exact right move. I never, I don't think I've ever said that. I think from our, from our book, it's really easy to boil this uh, concept of, of nice or not nice down to like feedback or management, you know, styles and things like that. But from our perspective, it has a more systemic root around trust, right? And trust and relationships and vulnerability within that space. Um, When you picture someone that you have to be quote unquote nice to by that article's definition, it's someone that you just don't know very well, right? It's somebody that if you really knew or had a relationship with, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be hard actually. It really wouldn't be hard to actually tell them what they need to hear and they'll know you're coming from a good place as well. And so I think that is one, a big connection to our philosophy. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point in that, let's say, Jeff, that um, that we didn't know each other well. We worked at the same company. We're in different groups, and, and we came together in the same meeting room for a presentation. And I thought your presentation was fine, but your slides are super busy. We didn't know each other at all. Why wouldn't I, after that meeting, say, hey, Jeff, loved a lot of stuff about the presentation. I thought some of the slides were a little busy. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but um, what I found sometimes is effective is X, Y, or Z. Now, part of it is you didn't ask for any feedback. Mm -hmm. And so I might feel, well, gee, Jeff didn't ask for it. It'd be a little presumptuous of me just to go up. Or we could switch that and say, I'm going to take the risk to be vulnerable and say, I think Jeff's got a lot going for him. And if he shows up with less busy slides, that's just going to help him go even farther faster. I really want him to win. And if Jeff, Jeff can respond in one of two ways. He can either, well, hundred ways, but we'll go binary. He can either say, hey, thanks, I appreciate it. Or he can say, thanks, I appreciate it. You SOB, how dare you <laughs> tell me how to present. But that that's on Jeff. That's not on me. If, if I come from a place of love um, in that, hey, I, I, I like the direction this guy's going. He's going to go further faster. It's like if you're driving along with a 100-pound weight tied behind your car, I might pull up to you next at the stoplight and say, you got to wait there. I don't know if you're trying to go fast or not, but if you cut that weight off, I bet you're going to go faster. That would be a nice thing to do. Yeah. That's all feedback is that you're dragging a bunch of stuff behind you. You're probably going to go slower than you should. You might want to you know, cut the cord there. And that's why when we talk about love as a business strategy, it's such it's at that business level, right? At a business strategy level, because what happens is you have organizations that just by sheer size and logistics, you can't possibly build a relation, a personal relationship between every single person. So you have to build a culture of feedback, a culture of this being the norm that it's okay. Like, like, and that's what we try to build. I mean, we're still working on it, but you know, the hope is that two people who don't normally work together come through a presentation and you will just have this, this norm, like you said, a a transparency award, you know, for, for everyone should be on the table where they're just Mm -hmm. like, Hey, I just want to share this feedback. I hope it helps. And that's, that's, I think the goal that we really want out of that. Yeah. There's another barrier I didn't mention. And actually my, one of my very smart colleagues who I, uh, I founded the talent management Institute with Jim Shanley reinforces a lot. Not everybody wants to be a high performer and not everyone is concerned about their team being high performers. And they may, that may sound unusual to some folks, but, I'm sure you've worked with people in your life. They're like, yeah, he's, he's okay. He's not perfect, but I don't, I don't need perfect in that job. It's fine. And what they mean is it's not worth dealing with. 
Um, I don't care enough about high performance to replace that guy or coach that guy. It's, it's fine. I think that's one of the other things that does get in our way is there are people who simply don't have that standard. Therefore, they don't have any incentive. You know, if, if I think that Bob is average and I don't really care, he's fine, he's not in a critical role, why would I aggravate Bob and stress myself out by giving him any feedback? He's fine. So I think part of it is we can't expect every person to adopt that mindset of I'm going to be open to everyone because some folks just don't care. That's interesting because I would say that that mindset could actually breed a culture of toxic positivity where you have this environment where saying negative things isn't even allowed because it starts from that place of I don't have that standard. I don't care about the next person or for whatever reason, not every role here is critical. Why go through that? And why would I want to hear about all the problems at that point? Um, yeah. Only like manage up, right? You start hearing those terms creep in, right? You start hearing that 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 veneer that everything is okay um, is the norm and what's accepted and anything that is not good or anybody that is facing a problem or any system that isn't working that needs to be addressed. Let's not talk about that because if you can't frame it positively, I don't know if we're going to actually want to hear it or care to fix it. Which is why I love a good crisis because a good crisis cuts right through that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I mean, seriously, I didn't, I didn't yeah. tell Bob something. Now we need to cut costs. I need to have a conversation with Bob about his performance because yeah. someone's looking down at me saying, you'd better get 30% out of that. Or, I mean, we work with, I'm, what trying to phrase this in a way I don't disclose anybody. Uh, we work with a lot of financial firms. Um, mm -hmm. And I was having this conversation with a very profitable financial firm who had let people in kind of the middle strata be there for longer than they should have been based on their performance because they had the financial largesse to do it. No one's, it was not going to cost them a penny a share to have those people there. They're fine. We got plenty of money. Didn't drive any choices. Now, luckily, they brought in a new CEO who said, I don't care what they cost. They aren't, they aren't adding value. Either get them up or get them out. Um, but sometimes um, the, the financial largesse of certain industries allows what you just described, Chris, to, to happen, which mm -hmm. is we got plenty of money. It's not worth the effort. Just kind of go on. You get this, what was your phrase? Toxic happiness? Positivity. positivity? To yeah. yeah. Toxic positivity. Yep. One, love the phrase. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, and again, not to, to wish anything bad on any company, but a good crisis cleans up uh, a lot of this or, or points a, a very bright light on weak managers very quickly. Agreed. Yeah. For sure. Tell us, tell us about it. Go ahead, Mo. No, I was just going to say, so what are some of the things that you would give advice to our listeners in terms of starting to, you know, go away from the nice culture to be being very nice or doing the things that the right thing to do? What, what, what kind of advice do you have? Yeah, I like starting just with what are the clear standards for how we manage people in our firm? Uh, we call it a talent philosophy, but it's really saying things like, you know, we, we have a structure, performance, behaviors, accountability, transparency, and differentiation. What's your point of view in each of those areas? Uh, 
for things like behaviors, not do behaviors matter? Of course they matter. But how well or how good do my behaviors have to be before something really positive happens to me? Or how bad do they have to be before something negative happens? Um, transparency. How open do we believe in being with people about their performance and potential? There's no right answer, but there should be an answer. Um, accountability. How accountable do we want to hold everyone for building the quality and depth of their teams? And consequential accountability. What good things happen to you if you've built a strong team? What not as good things happen to you if you don't? Just clarifying that is a great way to kind of say, hey, there's a standard for how we operate here. But then what's the accountability to make that happen? Um, how do we ensure that people not only understand it's our, um, it's our belief uh, system, but we're going to promote managers who, who do this well, and we're not going to promote managers who don't do it well. Hmm. Got it. And with respect to like uh, cultures geographically, like you work with different world organizations and how do you tackle the unique nuances of the cultural, you know, differences that might exist inside of the scorpion just because of their geographical proximity or where they're located? How do you handle that? I've been really surprised over the past 10, 11 years of consulting, how much consistency I see mm -hmm. around the globe. And let me let me take a step back. When I grew up in the the HR field, the organizational development field, we it, we were steeped in culture is different around the world. And there were tools for managing culture compared to this country's culture to that country's culture. And I think maybe just because management tools become so common around the globe, when I travel around to different cultures, different industries, there's not a lot of variance in terms of how they think about getting stuff done. Now, are there cultural nuances? Yes. If I'm giving feedback in Japan, is it going to be couched a little bit differently than giving feedback in Boston? Sure. But the core underlying message of that person needs to understand what to do differently to move forward still applies. And I think part of this is personality doesn't change. We all have personality set around the globe. There isn't a British personality and a Brazilian personality. Personality is the same for every person, every age, every creed, color around the globe. And in many ways, that means we're going to respond to the same stimuli in the same way. So um, if you're if you're native Japanese and I give you feedback that embarrasses you, you're going to be embarrassed. If I do that in Brazil, you're going to be embarrassed. Um, in mm. the same the same stimulus and response is going to happen, which allows us to say we're going to come up with kind of the right way to get whatever talent activity is done. And then let's overlay on that any cultural nuances that need to apply as opposed to what's your culture? Let's build something that's right for you. We start with the assumption of you have people, you're working in a company. Okay, that solves about 80% of the question. People who work in companies tend to do this. Now, let's figure out maybe your industry, your national culture, but also, as, as you guys know, so many companies are, are global these days that um, we find in many cases it's the home country culture that dominates. Yes. I mean, if I'm working for BMW, I'm going to expect a Germanic culture, whether I'm sitting in Singapore or Sydney or San Francisco. If I'm working for... Um, um, Oracle, uh, same thing. I'm just like a U.S. type of. So I also I find that company culture 
trumps country culture um, mm. in, in many situations. I mean, there's still always still a country culture overlay, but um, if you sign up to work for BMW, you aren't saying, oh, but we're Singaporeans, so we manage this way. You're saying, yeah. okay, no, BMW manages this way and we'll, we'll adapt a bit if we need to. Yeah, and I have a, I have a story to go with that. So, uh, you know, we have an operation in India and in Houston, and my brother is the managing director of our company in India, in Bangalore. And as we were talking about company cultures, there was conversations around, well, in India, that's not how things happen. In India, that's not how people behave. That's not, that's not a part of our culture in India. And uh, it, it took, it took me and him a little bit of uh, going back and forth and a few months to really understand that it's our company culture that trumps the culture of the region where you know our, our offices are located. And uh, the easiest example that I could use for him is whenever he travels to Houston from India and he drives in US, he follows every single traffic rule, <laughs> all the speed limits, staying in the right side of the road, everything to the T. And then as soon as he's in India, he's breaking all the traffic laws <laughs> that you can ever imagine, honking all the time. And, you know, all of a sudden you behave differently in India. And in the minute you land in Houston, you're behaving differently. Yeah. So the key that we ultimately arrived at was the environment that the organization has around their culture. These are the norms. This is the way we behave. This is the way we operate. No matter where you're born, no matter where you're raised, if you enter that environment of the organization that has certain values and norms, people can adapt and behave in ways that yeah. are acceptable to that culture. So the philosophy that no Indians operate this way or Europeans are this way or Asia Pacific, you know, uh, people operate differently. I, I don't completely agree. Like you mentioned, people are people at the end of the day. It's the environment that sets how they behave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, that rings joy to a ton of work in India. Um, and, and my book, One Page Talent Management, the second largest sales country is India. And mm. so I guess these concepts work in at least two countries. Um, <laughs> but also I've, I've done a lot of consulting and, you know, are there things like power distance and, and is age a bigger factor interacting in India than it is in the US? Yeah, by a, by a massive factor. Great. That's a nuance we need to account for. So maybe we aren't building upward feedback systems as often. Okay, what's another way of ensuring that the big boss gets insights? So kind of the, the universal truths stay the same and the way that we implement the solution to that truth might look a little bit different because, you know, power distance or, or age is a, a bigger factor in India than it is in a different country. But your point, the, the universal human factors of um, whether I'm working with an Indian billionaire or the lunch walla, they need feedback and feedback will help them do their job better. Therefore, yeah. what's the right way of, of making that happen? Agreed. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, no, that's funny you brought up BMW because I had a friend who worked for an ad agency that supported BMW and he said, no, we would have meetings scheduled at 837. 
like not like you know in u.s standard you you know half hour on the hour he's like no the meeting invite will come for 8 37 and you were there at 8 37 and it started at 8 37 um and and he was like that was no. a, we had to acclimate the the account team to working with bmw because we're all in the u.s right and when you are working with a client you adhere to their rules and so you have to do a training <laughs> of sorts like here's german culture here's what bmw is about and here's how they operate and this is how we're going to operate and so it is a a shift i love time as an indicator of national culture i also yeah. love working <laughs> with swiss companies german companies and austrian companies for that exact reason chris yeah. the yeah. meeting will start at, at 7 30 and you wouldn't even think about showing up at 7 39 right. then it's like is he dead what what yeah. happened <laughs> yeah no, it, mm. it was a great story mm. um so I'm curious, Mark, when it comes to, um, you know, this nice culture, what are ways to start, I don't want to say undermining, but sort of dismantling nice niceness? I know we're talking about feedback, but, you know, if you're in an organization where it's pervasive, like it's it's so thick, you can almost swim in it, right? How do you start dismantling being so nice that you're afraid to give that feedback or be transparent or, you know, do whatever needs to get done to get the information to people that need it? Yeah, I, I think it starts with what are our standards for interacting with each other? And that can be expressed in all sorts of different formats. But how do we, in a very consistent way, say, this is how we expect people to interact with each other and make it simple and clean and understandable um, and direct enough where, you know, are we saying everyone interacts that way? Is that managers interact with their employees that way? But what's the clear standard we have for how people interact? And then to what we were talking about earlier, what's the accountability for doing that? There needs to be some teeth in that because it's not a natural behavior for a lot of people. So what do those teeth look like? Is that in the performance evaluation system? Um, behaviors are not just a, you know, are you a nice guy, nice gal, or did you not lie, cheat, or steal? But we're really clear, these are the few behaviors that matter most, and there's meaningful, uh, meaningful weight in the evaluation around those. So some message saying, hey, we're serious about this and good things are going to happen to you if you do it and not so good things are going to happen if you don't. And that's process-wise. A lot of it, though, is then leadership saying, I'm going to model that behavior. I'm going to be open with you. I want you to be open with me. Uh, we're going to create an environment where we show that we love each other by being open and honest and also recognizing that that transparency doesn't mean total disclosure. Mm -hmm. I don't need mm -hmm. to tell everyone everything I know or think about them in order to be honest. But yeah. <laughs> um, my perception, my view would be that in most cases, we turn have the dial down too far uh, than too yeah. high. I don't think most mm -hmm. people are ever at a risk of being too transparent. Um, <laughs> so I think having the... Um, having very clear standards. Here's what we think is the right way, the truly nice way to interact with people. Um, here's how we're going to make your life better if you do it and, and less pleasant if you don't. Um, and if you look up the hierarchy, you're going to see everybody doing exactly what we've just described. That mm -hmm. should hopefully give it a pretty good push to get some momentum going. Awesome. And recognizing, again, a lot of his reps, a lot of it is Chris comes out with that statement. I'm like, I don't believe Chris. The moment I'm <laughs> honest, I'm going to get whacked. Um, yeah. And then yeah. I'm honest with Chris and he didn't get mad at me. Okay. And and he was honest with me and I didn't get mad at him. 
Okay, I'll try that again. Let's see if it happens. It was just lucky. Part of it is just reps. Let, <laughs> yeah. Let's get some honesty reps in. And mm-hmm. because again, some people are naturally not not trusting. Some personality types are, uh, types should be very skeptical that that people are genuine or interested. You got to get reps to to reinforce that behavior. But yeah. if if the standard isn't there and the accountability isn't there, it's difficult to get anybody to even take that first rep. Yeah. And so I'm curious, Mark, when you start this conversation, are you starting in the middle of the organization or are you starting at the top of the organization when it comes to your engagements, when you come, when it comes to like working with a company that's trying to transform? Yeah, it's almost, it, not necessarily CEO, but it's always C-suite, um, just because that's who tends to buy our, our services. Um, mm-hmm. And also our view is that's where a lot of what we help organizations with, that, that's where it needs to start. Even what we're talking yeah. about today, um, I'm not trying to create a bottom-up culture of transparency because if you're, you're at the bottom, you're saying you first. Uh, and that's a very <laughs> fair, a very fair yeah. thing to do. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I just wanted our listeners to know that in case they are the ones at the top or who are the most senior and they're waiting yeah, for someone the to show the them. House, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, if you're at the top of the house, it's yeah, the, oh, they aren't doing it. Yeah, that's you. Uh, so <laughs> kind of man up, woman up and, and get going. <laughs> No, I know. Sense. I know. For Softway, we 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 also you even have to be aware that like like Muhammad, for instance, at the very top in Softway, but even with him, like he'll in a single day attend two separate large meetings and have a very different, nice culture <laughs> play out. They'll have. And I'm talking about calls with like 20 plus 30 people, right? You'll have one where it feels like every one of those 30 people is willing to speak up real time give feedback, no fear. You can't sense it. You can sense the fun. And and literally you'll leave that meeting, go to another one with a different set of people, some of which overlap <laughs> with the first meeting. And it'll just be crickets and it'll just be wait your turn to speak. And it'll be very polite and very cordial. And we've talked about this, Mo, like it's like this, this, yeah. like it's a tangible, palpable difference. And it really connects with me when I think of this nice culture, because everyone's being very nice (laughs) um, in those meetings. They're very nice to each other, but we're not solving any problems. And we're not getting to the bottom of very many things. We're not willing to speak up about kind of all the the dirty underbelly of what's happening. Yeah. So I think it's absolutely true. Like even from a team aspect, uh, forget like just leader to, uh, you know, the team member, but the team's even at a peer level, there's this whole nice culture thing like we're describing where we're afraid to tell a teammate, hey, man, you let me down or, you know, you didn't deliver what you were supposed to deliver to me for me to do my job because they're afraid to offend each other. And I can see teams that are high performing versus not so high performing. Um, It comes down to this ability to have those candid conversations and the ability to give feedback and receive feedback in in a way that they they take it in a constructive manner and with a growth mindset and those are the teams that end up being far more successful and a and a litmus test to that is to go into a meeting and how they communicate with each other if they are being extremely respectful waiting for their turn and not speaking up then we know okay this team definitely has a problem whereas another aspect of it could be seen as oh well, they're just being professional but at the end of the day they are probably not going to be high performing collectively as a group and you can be polite and nice and honest at the same time i think sometimes yeah. we think 
uh, being honest is not polite. Um, yeah. I said something that Mo didn't like, therefore it wasn't polite. No, I could say it in a very polite, respectful way, um, but still get that message across. Agreed. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And I think uh, for me, the the biggest eye opener to what you've been talking about is when I started to travel internationally, because I always had these preconceived notions that different places operated differently and wouldn't accept my American way of dealing with conflict or conversation and just going to different companies and, and different cultures across the world has really shown me that humans are humans no matter where you go. Right. And, you know, as you as you mentioned, everyone wants to get better. Right. Everyone wants to bond. Um, but also everyone typically shows up thinking that they are going to do or would like to do a great job. Um, and so keeping that in mind, you can have you can literally give any type of feedback to someone as long as you, of course, approach it the way that is going to be one well received, but also from the place of love where you want to see them successful. And, well, and it goes to our earlier Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish, Mark. So I, yeah. I was going to go to an earlier conversation about Indian culture. One of the first yeah. things I learned starting 20 years ago working there was yes doesn't necessarily mean yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, right. so th this will be back in my hotel. The, the laundry will be back in my hotel room by four. Yes. That was an acknowledgement that I had asked a question. That's all it was. So, and, and so part of it, yeah, learn the nuances because if you said, yeah. you know, the client's waiting for this at 8 a.m., will it be there? Yes is is the first part of the conversation. <laughs> it's not the answer. Um, yeah. So just, I think, understanding some of those nuances, to your point, Chris, um, everybody yeah. wants to do the right thing. They might express yeah. it in a way that because we're not used to hearing that response, it's like, yeah. but he did let me down. No, he didn't. He acknowledged that you answered, a, that you yeah. asked a question with the word yes. It, we're not taking it the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> Jeff had an immediate reaction. I think, Jeff, you have to. <laughs> I'm sure Jeff's never heard it's that before, but flashbacks, you know, really, just PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> So I was going to talk about, you know, how we're talking about uh, giving feedback and being nice. And we uh, talk about a concept here about empathetic leadership versus sympathetic leadership. Um, right. And what we've noticed at times is if they're seeing a person, say, struggle or have certain issues or problems, the peers or the supervisors, um, they tend to think they're being empathetic to their situation, so they don't want to hurt them. They don't want to tell them what they need to hear. So in their mind, they think they're being empathetic, but really what's happening is they're being sympathetic and they are not, and sometimes going to the apathetic layer because they think they're being empathetic and they're not helping the very person that they're trying to empathize with. And the key is, if you truly empathize with your peer or your employee, then you will have the courage to help them get out of that situation, not just leave them there and feel bad for them or think you're being empathetic when you're truly being sympathetic and apathetic. You're not really helping. You're not really caring for them. You're just letting them be who they are. And in your mind, you're thinking you're being a nice boss or a nice coworker, because, you know, I understand what he's going through or I understand the situation. So I don't want to, like, really hurt him any further or put any uh, additional pressure on him. And that's actually counterintuitive and counterproductive. 
And how do you help managers, one, understand the difference between those two, and if they need to make the shift from one style to the other? What do you find effective in, in doing that? So scenario-based training, <laughs> we try to take them through these exact same scenarios and talk to them about here's how a situation presents itself. An employee, for example, has kids and it's a work from home environment and you have children that you have to take care of and feed and, um, you know, facilitate the, the well-being of their children. And in those situations, if you as a supervisor are not able to uh, hold accountability to a task or something that was delivered, are expected of them and you end up avoiding having those conversations because you think you're being empathetic and say, no, you know, this employee has kids, they have to take care of the children. So I don't want to put that additional burden of asking them why they didn't finish a particular deliverable when they needed to. I'm right here. And in, <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted to be named, but I, I mean, I can tell the story, but <laughs> go for it. Go for it, Jeff. I'll let you. I mean, this, is, this is about me. I mean, I'm an example of this. I mean, like when, when the pandemic first hit, you know, we all, we all kind of learned a new way to, to operate. And so one of my ways was my kids were home all the time and working from home. My wife still worked. So just a lot of childcare mixed in. And so I, I, you know, I was learning my groove and, you know, the kids were a factor, you know, that they're, you know, during a meeting, they pop up or I'd, I'd have to delay or reschedule things here and there. But, you know, I was doing my best trying to be, you know, I don't think I was being disruptive or overly, you know, you know, checked out or anything. But, you know, the sympathy of my peers led conversations away from me, uh, the, the story to be, well, Jeff is too busy, he's not going to be able to, to make that or, you know, he's got kids right now. Let's not let's not bother with that. Let's try to work around that. And then it, you know, through telephone games, it became Jeff's complaining that that he's too busy with kids and he doesn't want, you know, that it's me saying these things. And this is where it got when it finally got back around to you. I'm like, what I'm like, I'm like, I'm asking people why I'm not invited to a meeting. I'm like, I I'm not looped in and I'm frustrated. And they're saying, Well, you you're the one who's you're struggling, right? I'm like, no, I'm not struggling. <laughs> What's wrong with you? And so right. th that is that is the the kind of personal experience with what happens when niceness goes a little far. Um, and, and it actually yeah. led to exclusion. It led to you not being even invited to meetings yep. because people thought they were being empathetic and being nice to Jeff and what they were doing without his permission. They wouldn't even invite him for meetings that was about his project or his deliverable. And it went that far. And uh, I think genuinely people thought they were helpful and they were being nice, but really what it led to was exclusion and not getting the outcomes that the business need to achieve. And so we teach, okay, so in those scenarios, what we should have done is have that conversation with Jeff and say, hey, Jeff, do you need any accommodations or should we move the meeting? Should we, you know, what it is that can we do to help you get the deliverable met? Or is it even a problem instead of assuming and trying to be nice? So those are like some examples. And yeah, that, people, that brings to, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was just gonna say the other thing that we do is, you know, Muhammad especially really tries to model the behavior. 
right? So just like you said before, like when they see what it looks like to one, be held accountable for the work, but still, you know, have the ability to influence how that work gets done, which is where that empathetic leadership bit comes in. You know, once you experience it, it's a lot easier to take that forward and be like, oh, OK, I like that. Like <laughs> it worked for me. I'm going to try that now, uh, now with one of my colleagues or one of my teammates or, you know, someone who reports to me. Yeah. And I see a parallel to the, the story that you were describing when we hear uh, succession planning stories or really lack of succession planning, especially around senior level women. And and it's that same sympathetic I think she's got a couple of new kids. So uh, we don't want to put her in this project over here mm. as opposed to, did you talk to her? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyone actually ask her if she wants yeah. to go on the project because she's always done yeah. a lot of good stuff before. And, and yeah, I think it's, um, I would love to understand the psychology behind it. Now I, I have to do homework because you brought this up. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it is an, in a very interesting and probably widely held misconception or widely demonstrated bad management technique to say, I care, therefore I'm going to avoid. Mm-hmm. Paternalism. <laughs> Paternalism yeah. is the word that most DNI professionals would use. Like, I'm gonna make the decision for you, but I'm doing it out of care. I'm well-intentioned, but it's still making the call for you without even consulting or considering you um, in that decision-making. Yeah. And, I, and I think the number one thing we hear from people who like question our approach, essentially the, the naysayers, is that they they come with this assumption that there's, if you have, they always ask like the challenge is like, well, how do you, you know, if you're just gonna love everybody all the time, then how do you like, how do you get things done? Like, how do you, you know, stop being nice is kind of the question they're asking. And that's what they're saying is, what they're revealing about their mindset is that they only see the binary of an apathetic leadership style or a sympathetic leadership style. In other words, you put the business first and put people completely aside. So you're the type of manager who says, bottom line, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I don't want, I don't care what you have, you know, what's going on in your life. Just give me the results. That's apathetic. And then sympathetic, which is, oh, I care. I definitely care. So let me just take that off of your plate. Let me just, let me just coddle you or just, you know, remove this worry from you. I care so much. I'm so, I'm so loving. And that's the that's how they that's that's they only see one or the other and they miss what I think your article is trying to say too because your articles are being provocative saying don't have a nice culture but you're also saying don't have a mean culture right you're saying yeah. you're saying let's <laughs> redefine nice let's redefine what nice is and I and I love that 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 that's the answer and I I feel so um I feel that resonation for sure well and blowing up that binary to your point I think is is so important in a lot of work interaction or a lot of interactions that we have with our clients, something as simple as, and it, and it might be similar to the binary you just set up. Um, well, if we tell some people they're high potential, then everybody else will be upset. So there's a binary, either you're a high potential or you're a nobody. Well, yeah, if those are the two camps, I'm going to be pretty unhappy if I'm a nobody, but why aren't there points along the way? Um, you know, Hey, Muhammad, you're a high potential. Here's the fair deal at our company for that. Hey, Chris, you're a high performer. Here's the fair deal again for that. Jeff, great, solid performer. Love those behaviors. Here's the fair deal for that. Different deal at each of those levels, but still a fair deal. I can still communicate that, hey, love you showing up this way. Here's how we invest in people who show up your your way. There can be lots of points along that continuum. Um, So kind of that same mindset. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, we love some people. Therefore, by definition, there's everybody else. 
know, there should be lots of different points where we meet people where they are and have that conversation. Agreed. Absolutely. I think to your earlier, uh, your earlier question about how do you, how do we address um, getting to empathetic leadership? I think it's important to, um, it's not a single tactic or symptom from our perspective either. Like you can't just say, I'm going to initiate this empathetic leadership, you know, push or campaign. It's so connected to, like I mentioned, trust and relationships and some vulnerability and, and, you know, it's tactical as well. Like, how do you give feedback? How do you, um, you know, be leadership skills, if you will. But then if you only focus on that narrow perspective of, hey, in this, you know, we definitely do this scenario based training, like Muhammad said, but scenario based training alone does not get leaders to understand the bigger picture and start building that true example. Because um, what we find is like things like this can't be faked either. You can't exactly make it very far being doing all the empathetic things with air quotes, um, but not actually believing, right? Like caring that you're trying to help and trying to nurture and, and support those around you. Servant leadership um, is a big part of, part of this as well. So I'm curious, when you originally went out to the marketplace with love as a business strategy, what did you hear from from folks? How much was, hey, that's novel? How much was, that's the squishiest thing I've ever heard of? What, what was the array of responses that you all heard? Because when you first reached out to me, now I have, um, I'm super skeptical. I'm like 99th percentile. Anything I hear is bullshit till it's proven not to be bullshit. And so when, when you first reached out to me, I'm like, okay what's behind this um and then i had a conversation it's like okay this is kind of cool um but i'm just kind of curious what when you launched the firm and you launched the brand what did you hear from india we heard yes clients are going to kill me for calling them out <laughs> yeah. i i i can start it off but i'd love jeff and chris you guys to also add on but um, to be honest, I think we've encountered uh, all types of responses, some very much curious and interested and wanting to hear more and say, hey, can you help us understand this? I'm, I'm intrigued. This sounds very interesting. And then we've had the skeptics or, you know, the non-believers are like, okay, that's just too soft and this is not for me. That's not something we're interested in. And then we've seen a side where people immediately get it. They're like, yes, that makes like that makes complete sense. Why can't we have that in a workplace? So we've seen like three different spectrums. And obviously the ones that we've had most success with is the ones who are curious, who are willing to explore and trying to understand it further, because that means I think they have more awareness and recognition that, okay, there's something that is not working in the workplace today. And we're willing to explore something that's non-traditional or not, you know, in the mainstream. And mm -hmm. that's where we've had the most success is when organizations have um, certain uh, enablers inside of their organization who, who start to explore and then become believers. And then they become early adopters and mobilizers into their organization. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, Chris, I, I don't know if you want to add anything else. I there. get I get the impression that no matter who we talk to at, at first blush, people think they get what we're talking about. 
Like they think no matter where you're coming from, whether you do get it or not, I feel like that people get it. They're like, oh, you're, you're talking about culture or like, oh, like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. We already do that or we already have programs for that. And I think the difference is that if we can get that first conversation, and this is why we started the podcast, right? If we can start talking about the details behind this and what we, what we uncover is that there's a big difference between getting it and practicing it. And, and so that's the, that's the, the, the kind of differentiating factor that we try to really lean on is that we don't go anywhere trying to preach that we have the magic formula figured out and we have these steps, you know, completely laid out. We have more of a perspective is that we've, we've seen some stuff, we've done some stuff, we've tried some stuff and we're still doing some stuff and we're constantly being practitioners in this space. And that's where people start seeing, okay, well, that's like, it's, I thought I got it, but when you put it that way, there's a lot more for me to think about. There's a lot more for me to see. So it's un, un, unraveling that for them is what we pride ourselves in doing. Yep. And I think for me, um, the only thing that I'll add is that the intentionality behind using love as a business strategy is to polarize, right? Because we get the reaction that we need to understand faster. So if we're dealing with somebody who is an inherent believer, that conversation is going to look totally different than someone who's a natural skeptic and they need to be convinced a little bit more. And it's not that we're trying to sell them on anything right in that moment. But once you put that out there, love as a business strategy, some people are naturally like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, and they want to sort of dig into those, you know, details that Jeff is mentioning. And then those who are going to be like, right? Like then we get to talk about, hey, (laughs) what's happening in your environment? Let's talk about what a lack of love is. Let us define what love is from our lens and what that looks like so you can understand if there are pieces that you might find missing, right? And it's more about seed planting from that skeptical lens where it's like, you know what? Today might be the day where you say that you're a believer or you convert, but you go and have some more life experiences in your organization. And I'm pretty sure you'll understand when you're on the receiving end of a rant or, you know, a manager who's not considering your family or your needs or situations that are happening in your world, you'll come back to us, (laughs) right? And that's kind of bold and, and whatnot, but it's sometimes the easiest way to cut through the noise and get people to tell you where they stand. Yeah, it feels like it's a very fast way of saying um, for the audience who we know is going to love us, let, you know, let's mm. not call it Bob's consulting firm. Um, let's be really <laughs> direct about this is who we are. Yeah, let's build, you know, let's build, let's build an on-ramp for the people we know want to <laughs> drive here. I yep. love that. Yeah, indeed. Well, Mark, first of all, this has been an incredible conversation. I think, you know, your time is very valuable and we really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us today. It was, it was amazing. So thank you. Well, Jeff, Chrismo, um, great to talk with all of you. Um, uh, you. You made my afternoon a lot lighter. So that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> awesome. So, so Mark, you have the Don't Have a Nice Culture article that people can find and One Page Talent Management Um a great book and also eight steps to high performance, right? Is there anything else that, you know, listeners might be able to learn more about you, hear more from it that you'd like to share? Yeah, I have tons of my articles on the website. So everything's free on the website, talentstrategygroup.com. Articles, videos, everything's written very practically. It's all about here's exactly how to manage talent to get even better results. So uh, I just encourage folks to dig into as much of that as they would like to. Yeah, and we can vouch for the the content. It is very, very, very good stuff. Um, and 
for at least as far as this podcast goes, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep posting new episodes every Tuesday here. And if you like what you heard today, please do leave us a review, subscribe on Apple and Spotify, and please do check out Mark's stuff. And once again, I'd like to thank Mark, also Chris and Mohammed for this time. And we will see you guys next week. Peace.